Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tilted Icer. We've been featured, haven't we? We've been featured in the fabulous We Are Cult website. Oh, yes, yeah. We've been podcast of the week. I don't know, probably be over by the time this goes out, but the page doesn't come down. It's still there. So thank you very much indeed to We Are Cult for that. And yeah, it was nice being asked questions about what we do and what have you. And I noticed that we've got a, not necessarily a disagreement, but we have conflicting views on who should be top of our interviewee list because I've nominated Barry Cryer, you've nominated Tony Curry. No, I was surprised that you didn't nominate Tony Curry. Oh, he's, he's on there, yes. The thing is that if I was to look at my window and with a pair of binoculars, I could probably see him if he's doing continuity at BBC because I can see BBC from my window. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll wave from my window and say, hiya. <laughs> But that would be weird and probably spoil any possibility of an interview, so maybe I won't do that. This week, we're talking about something that I think we've probably referenced a fair few times on this podcast and on the sitcom club as well. And it's one of those films where it's like, we, we like spotting faces, we like spotting different actors and bits and pieces and what have you, but like recasting and all that kind of thing. And I think you've referenced this a few times as in this is the film when it comes to just recognising faces, because the cast list is enormous. So what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the 1966 film The Sandwich Man, which in some ways is very much what we should be talking about on this kind of show. Exactly. I would say it is definitely a glimpse of a lost Britain before clone disease hit the high street. What happened, right? In 60s films in Britain, even when they're in slimy alleys, it looks kind of cool. looks kind of like the place you want to be. In 70s films in Britain, even the nice places look grim. Did we get a different sun? Was that something that came in maybe with the common market? As well as decimalisation, we got this different sun that had a slightly more sour light. Well, there must have been somebody who put that view forward, surely. I mean, you've seen the outtake of, of Joan Sims' character claiming that chill blains were never a problem before we joined the EEC. I bet there was actually people who said that there were specific devices in their homes that never worked exactly the same after we joined the common market. Like a particular alarm clock or something that never was really quite the same. Or, I don't know, the reception on the TV was a bit different and it's because it's now, like, from over the channel. It's a different current or something like that, you know? I would have loved to have actually been around at the time of decimalization and joining the EC just to witness it up close and hear the kind of things that, that people are saying and what have you. The closest you can get to that now is listening to sort of Johnny Spate monologues and what have you. No, you're quite right. This is a lovely visual spectacle. Is it the case that the 1960s were just eternally sunny? It could be that. Again, this also captures, I think, a turning point in some ways in that the film is about swinging London in a way and was released in some territories as that swinging city. And yet this film wasn't a hit... I'm not sure how much of it is exportable. Just a faint undercurrent of maybe the overconfidence that was beginning to cause things to be made just because of where they were being made. This is going to sound absurd. And of course, there's no way that you could know this at the time. But is this the kind of film that you only really appreciate several years removed from its release? In other words, people in 1966 did not necessarily appreciate how nice things looked in 1966. <laughs> There'll be things that we don't appreciate right now in 2017, and then we'll look back and say, oh, yeah, but we, yeah, we had that, didn't we? And 
it's not a museum piece. It's just a, a really nice. What, what do you call? What's that chap's name? You know, the one who does the, the films with Telly Savalas and what have you. Harold Bame. That's the guy. So it, it's like a sort of version of those, but with a narrative. And I suppose if it is 1966 and the weather's warm and what have you, why would you go indoors to cinema to look at the warm weather in 1966? You'd be out there. You'd be out there with, you know, the, the crowds watching Peter Jones in the street doing his scapology and what have you. I don't know if I've ever used the term on here, and I don't know if you're necessarily going to understand the term straight off. Sunday afternoon film. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Or bank holiday film. This film needs a certain budget. It needs a certain amount of money spending on it to look the way it does. What I'm saying is, is maybe certain people should have set out to make films knowing they were going to make a loss. Right, we have to spend this much money. This is going to do nothing theatrically, but we have to make an expensive 35mm widescreen colour film just so that kids in the 1980s have something they can kind of zone in and out of on the television on certain sunny, lazy afternoons. See, you call it a Sunday afternoon film. I'm actually going to say Friday. Friday afternoon. Half past one, after news at one and the regional news. It's a different film in every ITV region. It's probably been edited for timing because it needs to finish by three o'clock. I'm thinking this is perfect for that. And there's also, there's something special about the fact that you're watching it on Friday afternoon because you're not really supposed to be. You're supposed to be somewhere else. You're supposed to be at school probably or work or whatever it is. But (laughs) you're not. For whatever reason, you're not. And so you get to enjoy this extra bonus film in an unusual time zone. Yeah, I think that would give it a, a nice added frisson. But yeah, it's definitely a film for watching at home. I mean, if I was aware of a screening near me, I'd definitely go along. It's not really the kind of film you would associate with drive-in movies, put it that way. Speaking of drive-in movies, the best story I ever heard about a drive-in movie was somebody who went to see Star Wars on a foggy night. Uh, So what happened was they're watching the film and then the fog rolled in, which of course put itself between the projection booth and the screen. (laughs) And the person said, it was like virtual reality. The spaceships were <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> the stars were just in all directions. <laughs> so the space fights were wonderful in a foggy <laughs> Anyway, we're getting off topic. I guess part of the idea of this film was to break Michael Benteen into the movies. It's a Square World had been a big, big hit. I don't think now we're really aware of how popular it was. It's not something that's talked about in the mainstream very much. And the thing is, is that this strikes me as the kind of film you would make as not quite a passion project. I recently watched a TV movie about Jackie Gleason. Now, it's very narrowly focused really on just the cavalcade of stars and the honeymooners. Because I believe he made a film which is full of pathos and he's just like a, a bit of an outsider. This is the kind of film you can imagine... I'm not accusing Michael Benteen of being this, but you can imagine a comedian who's getting a bit full of themselves and wants to show themselves off to the world. This is the kind of idea that would crop up. Oh, it's a day in the life, and he just wanders around and sees all the wonderful places and things. It's the kind of thing that you'd think that Tony Hancock would do. Yes. One name that kept hitting me in the face as I was watching this was Jacques Tati. And I know certain people went a bit crazy about Jacques Tati, Hancock being one of them. This is more collaborative, so this is why I'm not saying this is Michael Benteen going over the top. It's more collaborative, 
he does he co-writes it, but I don't think it's him trying to prove himself a great clown. But it feels like a Jacques Tati film in the jokes are really kind of thin and weak. It's not a criticism of Tati, but I never recommend him to anybody. First time I saw a Jacques Tati film, for the first half I'm thinking, is this it? Nothing is happening. And by the end, I thought I would watch that again. If they just started it from the beginning, I'd stay here. But his humour is very diffuse and very gentle. I once explained to a friend who was a big fan of Laurel and Hardy, you know the beginning of Unaccustomed As We Are? And Oliver's describing the sticks, that thick and <laughs> apple pie with all the whipped cream. And Gary, what is Stan's reply? Any nuts? That's not really a joke. <laughs> it's not a witticism, but the place it comes, the way it's delivered, it clicks. But it's a very small bit of drollery rather than comedy. I said to my friend, I said, Jacques Tati's entire films are any nuts. Jacques Tati, it's like, oh, the door makes a funny noise when it opens. That's like one of the big gags or somebody's walking down the corridor and their shoes go. That's a gag. What I'm saying is, if this was a foreign film, I bet people would love it way more than they do. Oh, so subtle. Oh, so ironic. I think the, the British film industry, even in the 60s, which was a boom time, I think there's a certain amount of self-loathing. Over the past 15 years, I've been watching the changing of the tide and the opinion of the British film industry between the wars. And people like Matthew Sweet, who are fighting for this idea that this stuff has value. It's an interesting story. Yes, some of them are bad. Some of them are worse than any other film industry would have been allowed to get away with. But the good stuff exists and is very good and deserves to be put next to the good stuff of any other cinematic culture. So I think the sandwich man gets a raw deal because he's wandering around Britain and it's full of British people. Another thing we keep coming across, we come across it on the sitcom club, we come across it on Jaffa Cakes, racial stereotypes. This is a film, it's not full, but it contains a lot of broad racial stereotypes, what they call humour of its time. In the other column, this film is a love letter to multiculturalism. It's at that very peculiar stage when the racial makeup of a society is beginning to change and there's viewing it with suspicion and there's, oh, just live, let live. And there is a motivation within certain parts of that society to try and make a joke about race that won't hurt. Now, you can say this is patronising and from some people it is and from some people it isn't. But right at the beginning, we've got two guys in turbans and they are white actors covered in boot polish. And they're doing, goodness gracious me, kind of accents. But they're arguing about football teams. They're arguing about Spurs and Arsenal, is it? Spurs and Arsenal because they're the two North London clubs. So the whole idea is, for some of the audience, again, we're a little bit what we call the Mr. Humphreys effect, which we'll talk about next year, which is some people on seeing a stereotype will have their prejudices hardened. Some people on seeing a stereotype in a slightly different way, in a slightly different context, will take a different message and have their prejudices softened. So the whole idea is, right, these are a couple of guys who, to us in 1966, and especially outside London, where there's not quite so many of them, except maybe for Bradford, they're foreigners, they're other, and yet, look, they're having the same conversations we have. 
And the one line I really love is when one guy says to the other, you are Meshuggah. <laughs> and we have Bert Kwok coming out dressed as a Mandarin and he's going to drive an ice cream van with an Italian name on the side. I'm going to give this the benefit of the doubt, trying to say it's fine. It's not even like a call to them to assimilate. It just They just will. Guys who come here will find something that piques their interest and it will be part of our culture and they will make it their thing because it's good. But also there's a, a clever little, oh, I'm not sure what you would call it, but there's a, there's a clever little bit of turning the, the situation on its head because you've got the two characters who are obviously play on words. They're, they're members of the group, the new Seekers. Well, it actually says D-Seekers. D, that's a bit help. Yeah. So, okay, but you've got this situation where quite often, regardless of whether it is somebody from a particular background or if it is in this particular case, like actors who are wearing makeup and so on, quite often when you see films of this era, might be, say, Till Death is Depart, might be things like Graham Stark and Doctor in Trouble, for example, or you've got the Love Thy Neighbor film in 72. You know, you, you can tell a mile off what the setup is going to be. In this particular instance, the two guys are not arguing with anybody else. They're arguing with each other. So they've actually managed to concoct between them some sort of dispute, some sort of disagreement between each other because they've gone, one's gone Arsenal, one's gone Spurs, and now they've created this division between the two of them, which then keeps their argument going back and forth. Their argument isn't with anybody else. And that really sort of turns the, the normal situation completely on its head. And that, that's quite a clever little piece of writing. There is a slightly more stereotype bit later when they have an argument with Earl Cameron, who's a bus conductor, and they accuse him of discrimination. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a joke, but also kind of. It's a joke that's used by people who are not friendly. Oh, they're all as bad as each other. Mm, steady, guys. So I like the contrary impulses. And of course, the Indian characters are being played by white guys. The Chinese character is being played by... Is Bert Kwok? Bert Kwok was Chinese, wasn't he? Hey, hang on a second. Let's go over to Chock-A-Block. Whilst we're looking this up, let me just point out that one of the Sikh characters is played by Leon Fow. Leon Fow being producer-director of most of the series of Teabag. Way So... But if we're doing that kind of thing, I was listening to the commentary track by the producer and he did mention that I think this was a film that uh, he and his partner made immediately after Gog's Go Beat. Hey. So, Bart Craig was born in Warrington, uh, but was brought up in Shanghai, uh, and then left China in 1947. So. so, the Chinese character is played by a Chinese actor. Does he have any lines? Don't think so, no. Yeah, I think he, he just sort of appears at the beginning and end, doesn't he, largely? An Arabic character who's played by Spanish-Belgian Cockney Roger Delgado. <laughs> <laughs> who we've also seen in an episode of Here's Harry, Harry Worth, recently. Oh, Roger Delgado was in everything. Everything is better with Roger Delgado. Damn right. Oh, and Roger Delgado's character's always humming the British Grenadiers. That's another point. So shall I just read out the cast list? Well, no, if you do that, then the last thing we're going to say after the end of that is, well, that's all we've got time for this week. That's fine. We just have to keep hitting people with the names. So naturally... It is a Michael Benteen vehicle, Michael Benteen. Dora Bryan is his next-door neighbour. Harry H. Corbett as a stage doorkeeper. Bernard Cribbins as a photographer. Diana Dawes, first Billingsgate lady. Ian Hendry, 
Stanley Holloway, Wilfred Hyde White, Michael Medwin, you might know him from Shoestring. I think he was Lindsay Anderson's producer as well. I think he financed a lot of his stuff or got the finance for a lot of his stuff. Ron Moody, Anna Quayle, who I think needs treasuring a bit more than she. She's a face that people know, but because she was in Hard Day's Night, Terry Thomas, Norman Wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> his sequence I found the least rewarding. Donald Wolfitt. Alfie Bess, Earl Cameron, who's still with us at the age of 100. Hugh Futcher is, of course, Goggy, one of the uh, Sikhs. Peter Jones, Robert Lang, whose face you will know, tended to play shifty characters. John LeMessurier, David Lodge. Aubrey Morris, of course, always gives connections between the most unlikely of things and Deadwood. Sidney Taffler, Frank Finley. When I rewatched this to do this show, I'd never seen that Frank Finley was in it before. Second fish porter. Where's my son Aladdin? <laughs> Ronnie Stevens. Another guy who is just adds a little extra. <laughs> oh, Ronnie Stevens is this wonderful. And of course, uh, the voice of Husky, the Martian who likes sausages on Space Patrol. I mean, obviously, Ever Decreasing Circles is a wonderful comedy full of great lines. But the biggest laugh when I watched it with my wife for the first time was when Ronnie Stevens went, my arms are tired. And he sounded like Husky the Martian. <laughs> I don't doubt that's, I'm meant to recognise Tony Tanner. The name doesn't mean anything to me. Fred Emney. Peter Arne was the man in the Rolls Royce. I didn't realise that. Gerald Campion. TV's Billy Bunter and apparently a West End club owner in real life. Michael Chaplin. Yes, descendant of Charlie. John Junkin. We've mentioned Burt Kwok. Jeremy Lloyd. Playing a posh guardsman. Because what else would he be playing? Patrick Newell, mother from the Avengers. There are people I'm skipping because th their name doesn't uh, leap out at me. Oh, Michael Balfour. I recognize Michael Balfour. He's actually uncredited. wasn't sure if it was deliberate, but you passed over one particularly prominent name there who doesn't appear a great deal in the film, but Warren Mitchell. Anna Karen's in this. I didn't spot Anna Karen. Lady with dog. Nosha Powell. Because he's on the bus, yeah. And right at the end of the film, when you think you've spotted everyone... Brian Kent turns up. Hey. With hair. Oh, don't not forgetting Cluffy, who opened a news agent, Bartlett Mullen from Like a Lad. Is that the best cast we've actually seen in any of the things that we've watched for the, the show? It's a great game to play with people, particularly people who are not our age, people older than us, who don't necessarily obsess on minutiae. Gen X and millennials really do seem to keep lists in their head of every actor they've ever seen. I don't know if iGen is going to be the same. Whereas the early boomers and the late silent generation, they don't, do they? So there's a lot more... Oh, 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 it's... Oh, oh, I tell you, it's Burt Reynolds. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's a line from that show, complaining about Leonard Rosser's character. You're always sitting there pointing people out, going, there's a face, there's a face, there's a face. Drives me... Crazy, you can't follow the plot, for goodness sake. As opposed to some people don't really take too well to hearing all the actors announced as they appear on the screen. But can't help it. I mean, it's just a way, isn't it? I mean, you, you put on Lord Avengers on ITV4, and just straight away you're seeing faces. Just the other week, I messaged yourself and I said, right, I've just put on the Avengers, and there's Norman Mitchell, and there's also Sheila Fern and John Sharp. And and before I know it, it's like I've got like a dozen names I recognise. 
It's fascinating seeing where people turn up, especially when you've never spotted them in something before. I still haven't seen Simon Callow in that Carry On TV. What? Program. One of the Carry On Laughing shows, the ATV series, it's got Simon Callow on the cast list, but I haven't spotted him anywhere yet. Right, wow. It is interesting how British this film is, not European. There's nobody in there where you think, well, they've given this guy a heck of a lot of prominence, and I don't really know who he is. There's a bit in, have you ever seen Around the World in 80 Days? The David Nevin Canteen Flash version. No, I haven't. I know we're going to probably discuss that. We will mention it a bit more next week, but there's a bit in that where they're going to Thomas Cook's and the cab driver has difficulty with the name and then goes, Ah, Cook. It's like, That guy is somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, there's some cinema somewhere in the world where everybody's going, It's him. They probably put his name. Right at the top of the posters. But I have no idea who that is. There's nobody like that in this. I'm just thinking the 50s and 60s are really interesting time for the Euro blockbuster. Well, I mean, the Pink Panther's kind of like that, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Certainly the first Pink Panther. first Pink Panther is quite sort of, I suppose you would say, intercontinental. And it's sort of outlook. You've got quite a few different faces that you recognise from different countries and, and what have you. Yeah, the first Pink Panther film is... It's a bit of an oddity in some ways because it's, it's trying to be several things at once. And it's down there two hours as well in running time. And it's pretty much unlike any of the other films in the sequence because, of course, you know, later on, when it's Peter Sellers led, then they tend to get maybe narrower in, in outlook and a bit more sort of by the numbers. But yeah, the, the first Pink Panther film, it's not my favourite one. My favourite one is Return of the Pink Panther, which just saw for the first time for many years because it's got an airing on, I think it was Sony movies on satellite recently but yeah the first Pink Panther film that's an oddity there's plenty of faces to spot in it and it's not quite the broad farce that it later on becomes so if you're more familiar with say Strikes Again or Revenge or anything like that then it's, it's quite a different film but yes it's nice and it's one that benefits also hugely from being in HD on a big screen and what have you you can enjoy the luxurious 1960s. So when you think of it in those terms it's oddly insular sandwich man but then again it's being made by a company called titan i think at one point this was made by a company that was the producer the director i think the director also co-wrote it and michael benteen and eventually they parted ways with michael benteen there's just a few places where in the comedy track the producers michael benteen was very argumentative (laughs) and was always questioning this and that there's also because it's a little bit difficult he loved guns. <laughs> Those are two things that you never ever want to hear in the same sentence, are they? How different this film could have been if we just got a glimpse of Michael Benteen's interests in the film itself. <laughs> Instead of pigeon racing, he was just a gun enthusiast. This would have been a British 1960s version of Falling Down. <laughs> See, I don't necessarily want to bring Michael Benteen's politics into this because I might have had to research them, and if I'd researched them, I might have started finding disquieting things. I think he might have been a little bit GB75 in his mindset. Do we explain GB75 or do we leave it as an eternal mystery to make us sound intriguing? No, people can look it up. If you're at all interested, have a look. I think it's the entire thing is on YouTube. Have a look at the drama documentary with James Bolam about Harold Wilson. And there's... Didn't do the accent though, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't do the accent. But there's interviews with some of the people who were around at that time, who were 
considering at the very least considering their their options in terms of actually staging some sort of coup to take over the, the government. You say about how you you shouldn't delve too much into the the background of your 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 favorite people, what have you. I won't mention the, the name of this particular person who was referenced, but he's not like a headliner. He's, he's sort of figure from long ago, yesteryear. He passed away many, many years ago. And uh, a wrestler was discussing him on a podcast and said, uh, yeah, we were just chatting away one day. And he suddenly pulls out his wallet and says to me, what do you make of this? And he shows me his KKK membership card. I was not thinking <laughs> those terms. I was more thinking that I might find stuff and then I might suddenly go back to the film and start seeing the film through a political lens and this isn't a political film this film is really all about togetherness and love peace and love well this is the thing isn't it because i know this is getting away from, from michael benteen but it's, it's worth just mentioning in passing some people seem to be able to entirely separate actors performers from the background so if you ever discover something about a particular person and maybe it's simply something that isn't to your liking or maybe it's something that's unpalatable about them or whatever it is, you know, sometimes pe- people are just able to completely disconnect from that and say, no, I'm, I'm watching the performance, I'm watching the character. I know people just, from that point onwards, it's like, right, I'm done with that person now. It's just, they're erased. Don't want anything more to do with them. Don't forget also with, with particular performers or writers or directors, whoever it may be, where they are at one point in time in their life is it's not necessarily where they are later on as well. So people's politics change, the, the, the background changes and, and so on. And in a way, I think it's sort of unfair maybe to look at their work through that prism. But then again, sometimes it's difficult to separate it. As far as Michael Benton was concerned, I was faintly aware of his sort of his, his gun enthusiasm and his interest in the SAS. It didn't make any difference to me at all as far as this film was concerned. If, if you start going down that road and you start saying, okay, well, this person now you know, they can't appear on the screen anymore or can't, you know, watch their stuff anymore and what have you. You wouldn't be left with hellish much, really, would you? Because, as we've just seen from the cast in this film, everybody's in it. And so if you had a particular disagreement with one particular actor or whatever and you said, right, I'm not watching their stuff anymore, well, you wouldn't believe how many things are going to appear in over maybe like a 50-year span or something like that. So we haven't really talked about the jokes. Right, example. Michael Medwin as sewer men. He works in a sewer. He comes out of the sewer on his lunch break to buy some sandwiches. There's a long queue at the sandwich shop and it disperses because he smells. It's oddly weak, isn't it? Because I don't think this is necessarily meant to be a gentle comedy. There are certain points when you can tell it's trying to be raucous, but it's pulling its punches. I think you mentioned as well, I don't want to jump ahead, but you mentioned about how the last half hour has a different sort of vibe to it from the, the, the first hour. And it put me in mind of when we've spoken before about some of the goodies episodes, where it's almost as if the, the pen has transferred halfway through the episode from Grain Garden to Bellotti. And it's almost that you can sometimes visibly spot where it's happened on screen. Because where you've got very nice setup and, and wordplay and situations, what have you, then sometimes things just suddenly go off the rails. And before you know it, the, the whole style of the show has changed. And that, that's what this felt like a little bit. I would be interested to know actually the order of shooting for this because if the director's saying that he had problems with Michael Benteen and he was sort of argumentative and what have you, I wonder if, if this was one of those occasional films, like the Music Box, Lauren Hardy, for instance, if this is one of those films where, for whatever reason, it's largely shot in sequence, for whatever reason, then 
that might explain the slight change in tone because when you get Stanley Holloway appearing, for example, the nice, sort of cosy feeling dissipates. Yes, we do hit this weird section where things are just... It's the park, isn't it? Have we really explained what this film's about? Well, we've got one single thread going through the whole thing, which is set up right at the outset. The Sandwich Man, basically, Michael Benteen, is a very well-dressed chap because he is a walking advertisement, you know, the sandwich board, and it's for a gent's outfitter, so he's displaying the wares as he's walking around. And he walks around London at his usual stops throughout the day, displaying his advertisement. And, of course, then he's known by everybody in the entire city because everybody recognises him at different times throughout the day. But it begins with him explaining to the widow next door, Dora Bryan, that he's got a pigeon currently engaged in a race and he's waiting to find out how the pigeon's got on. So that, that that's our one little thread that's running all the way through. And everybody who meets him asks how's you know the pigeon doing. They're all asking about his progress. And there's also two young friends of his, or boyfriend and girlfriend, who have fallen out. And so there's partially him trying to bring them back together. And that's it. So he wanders around, yes. And at some point, I can't even remember who I've mentioned. I think I mentioned everyone in the cast list, but it feels like I didn't mention Alfie Bass. Alfie Bass has a big model boat that he likes to put on the lake, and it's taken him 20 years to do it. And Stanley Holloway's already been horrible to Michael Benteen. And a series of events happens, and Alfie Bass falls on some flowers, so Stanley Holloway stamps on his model boat. It's not funny. Then we have a bit of a lawnmower going out of control, coming to settle by parking meter, and the traffic warden who saw that this was not a parked vehicle had just come to arrest just this moment, as the ching little yellow flag comes up from the previous vehicle and gives the guy a ticket. It's just, yeah, it's just unpleasant at that point. And then there's this last 20 minutes, and thinking it's... In the book, um, Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and sometimes Zeppo might have got then not entirely the right order. I think the author, Joe Adamson's describing the film The Big Store, that at some point somebody says, this is a madhouse! <laughs> and he said, that's usually... <laughs> oh, if this was only becoming a madhouse. It's wishful thinking. And yes, the last part of this film, we're not going to do it in order. We couldn't really do a recappy version. The film is so bitty. The last part of this film is meant to be raucous and out of control. And it's oddly slow. And also, just out of nowhere, it's just like, oh, somebody's on a speedboat and there's a water skier and they're just getting in everybody's way. Yeah, that's weird. There's, remember I was saying before about how if this was going to be on at half past one on a Friday afternoon in any particular ITV region, it would be cut for timing. You can pretty much establish straight away which bits that would be. So you've got Norman Wisdom... His bit is, is too long. That wouldn't be the, cut out, though, would it? Because he's one of the more famous people in it. Yeah, but in for terms his of his time, what? he's he's there. I think because he worked for Rank, he had made the Rank organization an enormous amount of money. We really should do Norman Wisdom. I've heard the case against Norman Wisdom, but I haven't watched any of his films recently enough to form a proper adult opinion on them. And of course, he's mentioned in the trailer. They go Norman Wisdom as Father or Pitkin. His priest character doesn't have a name. He's doing an Irish accent for no reason. There are actually Catholic priests who are not from Ireland. But yeah, the whole bit with Norman Wisdom is longer. In terms of plot, I'm saying that it wouldn't do too much damage to, to at least trim 
that section. I would say the about section, 80% of the scenes could be removed with no damage to the plot. Probably. The only tricky bit would be if you're really sort of finicky, and I know that some people aren't, if you ever watch Man About the House, the film, on ITV3, it's probably going to be on over Christmas, you'll notice Jack Smithhurst and Rudolph Walker. Their names are in the cast. You're not going to see them in the film <laughs> when it goes out nowadays, and there's a reason for that. You can probably guess why. But if I was tasked with editing The Sandwich Man for a particular slot, I'd really want to be very picky and finicky to make sure that everybody's names who appeared in the cast actually does appear on screen. So I wouldn't want to just take a pair of scissors and chop out an entire section, even if it was going to be ideal for the length. Because then you'd be sitting there at the end of it saying, I thought Dave Lodge was in this film. I don't remember seeing any police sergeants. Where was he? And confusion would reign. I wonder if there are any outtakes. I don't think there's anybody on the cutting room floor. If there is, the producer does not mention it in his audio commentary. This film is available on DVD from Network. So it's, just, it's, it's such a shame he doesn't actually say. Unfortunately, we had to cut the scene with Orson Welles uh, because <laughs> yeah, it just didn't work. You know, it didn't fit. And he was very good about it. Well, Orson Welles was doing this. No, no, it's a couple of years later that Orson Welles is doing Orson's back. Actually, Swinging London does look incredibly grim in Orson Welles' camera. So I don't think there's ever been a really comprehensive release. There have been clips in it in a documentary called One Man Band, which talks about a point when Orson Welles, as part of this sketch show he was making in the late 60s, sings a song called One Man Band. And nobody mentions the fact it's a Bill Oddie song. I tell you another joke I don't like in this. We're, never, we're not actually going to point out any of the jokes we like, are we? Okay, well, you've got... I didn't mind the Michael Medwin joke, because it's got a punchline. It's the kind of thing you get like as a Stanley Baxter skit or something like that, isn't it? So It's probably you know, been used before and used many times since. But I particularly like that scene, John the Measurer, Warren Mitchell and so on, in the, the canteen area. Greasy spoon. Where, where, yeah, where, where everybody congregates at the beginning of the day and they're all old hands at it. And I think you've, you've got one, one guy who is like a newbie at it and he's effectively having a sort of job interview in the place. Doesn't he work for something called the Sexorama? Isn't that one of the jokes? It's interesting that even strip clubs are sort of part of jolly, happy together, swinging London. Well, I suppose if you're going to venture anywhere near Soho, then I suppose you, you, you're going to encounter her, aren't you? You watched All Cock and Gander, didn't you? I don't think I got to the end. <laughs> what, 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 the series or the first episode? I think I got to episode three. That's quite staggering in terms of certainly the title sequence. The title sequence wouldn't go out these days on gold if they were going to replay All Cock and Gander. And there, there was a sort of acceptance, the seedier parts of Britain, which have had the sort of the light put on them as a result of the permissive society, that they're just sort of there. And I think maybe there's a sort of feeling that they're there to stay. But of course, we know that didn't happen. But things do seem a lot more liberal in the 60s and 70s, certainly. Which is understandable. And I mean, okay, to quote Terry Collier in the first Whatever Happened to him, like the lads, you know, he goes away in 67 and it's all happening. It's all starting. And by the time he gets back, it's Malcolm Muggeridge and the Jesus Revolution. You know, suddenly the Festival of Lights turned up and it's all over and done with. Realistically, the window when anything goes and this is swinging Britain and what have you, it's relatively small, isn't it? Yes. And it's just interesting the little 
light this sheds on it that it's seen as just part and parcel of London life. Billingsgate Fish Market and nude sexoramas. It's that cafe with all the mosaic pieces on the wall outside. This looks wonderful. Now, I don't like the bit with the blind men. Blind men selling shoelaces turns out not to be blind. It must have been whiskery even then. And it's full of things. They're really like they're like a bunch of single panel cartoons from the Sunday Post <laughs> strung together. But I still like this film because of who's in it and how it looks. We talked about you, you say it's a Sunday afternoon film. You could very easily imagine this going out after the Queen on Christmas Day, couldn't you? It'd be perfect for that slot because you've had your Christmas dinner and you're stuffed and you're sort of half asleep and maybe you're the one who's sort of you know doing the washing up or whatever it is in the household. And this is the nice, silly, light, airy-fairy nonsense that don't need to pay close attention to. You know, the, the film with the plot, that's going to be on in the evening. But for now, this is this is ideal. There's another slight problem. So I guess the film is meant to be, in some ways, a day in the life. Now, this was something my wife pointed out to me that I'd never noticed before. There is a problem with the British sun in that it tends to go right up and then right down. And you can't tell what time it is very easily just by looking around you. And I really now know what she means. In California, you can kind of tell it's 4pm without looking at your watch. The light is behaving in a certain way. After having been here a couple of times and then going back, I would watch US TV shows and I could tell when certain shots had been done. And, I mean, yeah, we have sundials in the UK, so it must work somewhere. Okay, the shadows are different, the position of the sun's different, but it seems to be the same colour throughout the entire day. I think there's a slightly more orange, very slowly, in California. And that, in a way, bruises this day-in-the-life feel. Apparently. According to the commentary track, some of the scenes at the end are night for day shooting. <laughs> I find it hard to believe. I don't mean I'm casting any doubt. I, the reason I find it hard to believe is because the shots he mentions just look fine. So they must have had lights everywhere. But in the shots, you can't see the sky. They're being very careful. Well, they should use that same backdrop that they use in High and Dry. Tony Britton's sky. <laughs> I've still got to find that episode somewhere. If you're new to the show and you've never had that reference before, there's an episode of Robin's Nest where in Tony Britton's penthouse, you've got a fabulous view of the whole of London. It's obviously really high up and you can see St. Paul's and all sorts, but you can also see the creases on the skyline as well. And that's what I want when I open up my curtains. So right at the end of the film, it, it looks the same as the beginning of the film. And actually that pace thing at the end when you've got Ron Moody as... Is he a cox or is the cox in the boat? He's shouting at some rowers and he's meant to be. It's part of his job. He's a rowing coach. Yeah, he's a coach. Yeah. And all hell's breaking loose. And it's like, you know, if, if, if we're going to try and get the sense of the passage of the day, maybe things should be winding down at this point. Or would that be pretentious? Should this be a more poetic film? Tell you what would be grim if it was actually set in the middle of January. Imagine that if it was like, it was just sleet. And snow on the ground and what have you, and oh, it's better out. Oh. It'd just be cold, though, wouldn't it? it? Wouldn't necessarily make anybody's emotions any worse. But you're happier when it's a sunny day, aren't you? 
Okay, well, I'm, I'm not because the sun shines on the TV screen and I have to close the curtain. It's not like in January, Goggy and Rem's disagreement about football teams suddenly turns violent. <laughs> what would happen if we crossed this film with Magical Mystery Todd? Or is it that it wouldn't work? They both still need gags. Have you considered doing, I was going to say re-edit, as the kids would say these days, a mashup? You're the video editor out of the two of us. But there, there is a similarity there, isn't there? Everybody's in it together and wandering around and they're touched by magic. Now, in Magical Mystery Talk, it's explicit magic. In this, it's just the magic of being English and nice. And being English is for everybody. You don't have to be from here. That's part of the message as well. Look at Goggy and Ram. They argue about football. Oh, and we do also have a bit at the end when they turn up at the jazz club they're trying to get to. And they meet the manager, who is another beturbaned man, who is Michael Benteen. Suddenly he gets <laughs> this thing that he wants to play another part, so, but it's another guy in, in boot polish. I guess that's really why I wanted to do the film. That odd conflict between multiculturalism and guys in boot polish. And it just serves as something to point to, to say, look, this is always going to happen in the lost Britain that we look for and they shouldn't have done it not because it indicates any sort of animus against any race just because wow he must have been annoying I was watching a danger man the other night and two of the principal Southeast Asian what here in the US we call Asians are Peter Ahn who's the man in the Rolls Royce and the Sandwich Man and Kate O'Mara now we then have a later scene with Burt Kwok and another Asian actress whose name escapes me. But that must be a kick in the teeth. It's a really fantastic part here for an Asian actor. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, but we're not going to give it to you, mate. Come on. The instance that quite often gets cited in conversations like this, and let's just, or so for anybody who's just joining the podcast at this stage, let's just pop on the table straight away that none of us are really qualified to talk about this. So we're only just giving our view. But obviously, if we we're going to go in depth about this, and I think that, you know, we'd, we'd need some other voices to talk about their own views on this and their own experiences. I'm not trying to one-up you, but it's very mildly different for me because over here, I'm not so sure about the UK, not even in the UK, my wife isn't white. Mexicans aren't white over here. Or some of them are and some of them aren't, and Mrs. Araisa isn't. So it means I have to keep seeing things slightly differently. I will allow you that. I thought what you were actually going to say was uh, it's slightly different for me because uh, I've actually been personally affected by the lyrics in Englishman in New York by Sting. So, Oh, yeah, they suck. Bear that in mind. That's a terrible anyway. song. <laughs> Don't drink coffee, I drink tea, my friend. Yeah, that actually doesn't really mark you out. I think you can find Americans who drink tea. You can sure as hell find Englishmen who drink coffee. The hell are you talking about? What does it even mean? I like my toast done on both sides. Who the hell doesn't have their toast done on both sides? You mean they're actually... People, I'll be kind about it, who actually what grill their, their toast and don't do both sides? They don't use a toaster? Or do they butter both sides, which is weird? It means you can't hold onto the toast properly. So the instance that's quite often cited in these kind of conversations is Irina Fatmom. Because people will quite often bring up the character of Ranji Ram, played by Michael Bates. And people will point out Michael Bates' background and his heritage and argue that that in, in some ways legitimizes his his role, his, his right to play that particular role. Now, the strange thing is that usually when you see him on screen, 
sat with him are Dino Shafiq and Barber Batty. And that is an instance of what you're talking about there, where you've got other people who I suspect nowadays would fulfill such a role, whereas there seems to be a particular mindset in the principally in the 60s and 70s, that when a role is is particularly sort of high up in the cast, so it's particularly prominent, the tendency seems to be that it's then going to be a more established actor as far as UK audiences are concerned that's going to then be cast in that role, even if it involves blacking up or, or whatever it may be. That probably continues maybe until probably you'd say late 1970s. I don't think there's too many instances of it really by the time you get to the, the early 1980s. But I know that one chap who commented on this is a actor called uh, Renu Setna, and he appears in uh, at least one episode of In Our Moment, and you recognize him from all manner of all the different bits and pieces. And, you know, he sort of called them out on this and, and said, look, you know, this is, this is not really on. This is, this is not the, the, the done thing. And it, it's, it's an oddity. I mean, we mentioned before that Love Thy Neighbor film, surprisingly, is one of the few films of that era which doesn't really do that and yet in an early scene you've got Norman Mitchell playing an Indian bus conductor and strangely enough it stands out a mile because it's the only such instance like that in the film and it's a really curious piece of casting so you think well what was it what were they thinking about that that meant that they felt they needed to do that for that particular role but not for anybody else's role of course we answer that question but it's certainly something that's common in films of on TV of this year. Yeah. So I wanted to point to the sandwich man that has both issues inside it. It has that which we don't like, but we don't want people who like old stuff to get a siege mentality. And yet the sandwich man is also isn't it wonderful that we have all these people from different backgrounds? Isn't it wonderful how different they are? Isn't it wonderful how the same they are? It's interesting. But this is really a piece of work capturing a country in motion. It's moving towards the end of blacking up. And this is where it's going to. The world was not going to stop at this point. That being said, uh, the character of Arturo Bia in Doctor Who and the War Games can do one bit. <laughs> Don't get me started on the Scotsman and the Simpsons. ho! <laughs> So yeah, we're a couple of white guys talking about this stuff, and one of the reasons we've never brought somebody in to talk about it is it feels a bit wrong. Hi, could you come and treat one of your characteristics as your principal characteristic? I've seen it done to other people, even in very right-on organisations. Oh, you're a member of Group X. Excellent, we're actually trying to reach out to members of Group X. Could you be part of our Group X outreach programme? No, not really, I... I want to talk about pinball. Well, as a sort of observer, I would say that the right-on organizations are the worst for doing that. And I've seen it happen, in my own experience, I've seen it happen with you know members of the local community with Polish backgrounds, for example, that where somebody has tried to bring them into a particular campaign or cause or whatever it may be, as soon as they've tweaked, they say, oh, Oh, you're Polish. Oh, well, you, you need to speak to our particular person over here then because you need to be sort of in this particular box. And I have a friend who has, has always sort of reacted very badly to that. It's, it's not, not, not that they're, they're, they're in any way wanting to sort of distance themselves from their, 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 their heritage or their background or anything like that, but they just do not want to be pigeonholed. And damn right. 
I spent nine years down in, in England and it didn't happen very often, but if, if somebody was sort of talking about my Scots background and what have you, as far as I was concerned, it was just a thing. But it wasn't. It wasn't what was going to define me, for goodness' sake. I mean, it wasn't, ah, you just you know. reminded me of something actually to mention. Because, of course, we've mentioned the Beatles. We're trying to bring some of the threads together. Can I mention the Bee Gees? Please do. Because when they came back to England and came to London, they were looking for directions to somewhere, and they asked a sandwich man who was advertising this passport photo service. I think. Is on or near Oxford Street. I've been there. I had to go there to get photos of specific size for my visa to come to the US. And on the I mean, it's up like two flights of steps. Or is it three? It's just like a door in the middle. There's shops and normal things. And then there's just this one single door. And you go up all these steps. It's like you're going up to something a bit dicey. <laughs> It's like you've seen a thing in the news urgent's corrective leatherware, French lessons given. And inside there's this tiny little photo studio and on one wall is a picture and they are passport photos of every famous person on earth. <laughs> All people who've had their pictures taken, often for work visas, for work abroad, there was definitely Paul McCartney and maybe all the Beatles were on there. Anyway... They used to advertise with a sandwich man way back when. And Barry came up and said, uh, can you help us find this? And the sandwich man went, <laughs> which was no help. They managed to find somebody to give them directions and said, we talked to the sandwich man. And they went, oh, you've met Chris Vincent Kirk, who was apparently famous. And they kept the name in mind and wrote a song that wasn't about a Scottish sandwich man. But called Chris Vinton Cook, Royal Academy of Arts, and it's the best PG song. <laughs> uh, another thing to mention then about the Sandwich Man, right at the end, all of his friends are playing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow, including D Seekers and the Chinese Italian ice cream man, and somebody somewhere has got an electric sitar. And when they really start to vamp on those chords, it's like, wow, this is very 1966. You've actually managed to get on the cutting edge here. We're getting into early psych. By the way, can I just point something out that is a bit it's a bit tenuous, but I think there's some potential truth in it. And yourself being I'm gonna be really polite about how to say this. So you're one of those chaps who for whatever reason it's just you know, it's just nature's way. You you, you don't really get sport, do you? It's not not really your thing. No, it doesn't play a major part in my life. It's been a long time. I used to like watching baseball late at night, but baseball's on during the day here, so let me just point out that Sandwich Man was released in July 1966. And for anybody who's interested in football at all, July 1966, of course, means the World Cup. The World Cup that was taking place in England. Now, it's not just the fact that England won the World Cup, but also the fact that it was happening in England as well. And that means everybody's sort of all jolly and happy to, you know, be staging the event and welcoming everybody and so on. Now... I know that obviously the, the the film wasn't shot in July 1966, but I think that it would probably capture the mood very well in that particular month, in that particular year. Now, the European Championships of 2020, coming up a couple of years' time, they're taking place in all manner of different places across the whole of Europe. But the semis and the final are taking place in England, at Wembley. So if the England football team was to get its act together and win 
Euro 2020 at Wembley, who knows, we could have a sandwich man style renaissance. Suddenly it could be eternal sunshine. It could be pal sunshine and everybody could be happy and wandering around having conversations with one another in a nice way. Now, is this far-fetched to expect this to happen in 2020? I don't really understand football, so I couldn't say. The most important and exciting part of the World Cup in 1966 was the combined BBC, ITV, Eurovision, Ident. Yeah, that's very true. But the point is, it's not so much about the football itself. It's nothing to do with what goes on the pitch. It's about the fact that you've got an event taking place on your own doorstep, which... Okay, in the Euros, it's you know, obviously it's European Championships, but in the case of the World Cup, of course, the whole world's invited and so on. And that, I tend to find sort of, actually just makes people happier, generally speaking. You you see things like, you see national flags and George's crosses and what have you waving around the place in a very sort of positive manner. And the same goes for, of course, the other home nations and all the visiting fans from all around the world and so on. And so I'm just sort of thinking that yeah, maybe. I mean, it could it could have that kind of effect. It could have a nice sort of positive effect. This is very far-fetched. It's not going to happen. But if it was a really nice sunny day in 2020 and England went and won the Euros or Scotland, England-Scotland final, perhaps, not going to happen, then maybe we'll have a whole new sort of era of happy sandwich man type people having conversations on public transport and in greasy spoon cafes and out in the street and there you are and where are you? Because let's face it, people don't actually speak to each other, do they? I don't know what it's like in the States, but here, done that. People don't speak to each other on public transport or indeed anywhere else. I'm just thinking about the fact that you've just willed England to win a high-profile football game and you're a Scotchman in Scotland. Well, this is true, but I'm also something of a realist as well. It's not going to happen because the England team... You know where realism gets you. Don't come home too soon. (laughs) So the end credits of The Sandwich Man have nothing to do with the rest of the film. It's a wrestling match and a woman in a two-piece. I think she's quite quite a bikini, but yeah. That is very odd, isn't it? It yeah. is. I was I was hoping there was going to be an explanation in the commentary track, and there wasn't. But you haven't mentioned the... What do, what do you call it? The, the hover car? What is it? What's the thing called? I can't remember the name of the thing, but yes, there's a car that also goes in the water and acts as a speedboat. Now, why didn't that take... Because I thought it was an optical illusion at first. I thought that was a stunt. But you pointed out that no, it's actually a real thing. I'd imagine it's not entirely efficient as either a car or a speedboat. It probably falls between two stools a bit. Any road up. What are we talking about next week? Because it's not... Let's face it, it's not summer in 1966 right now. It is December in 2017. And December is when you watch the telly. You don't want to be out and about in the freezing cold. So what are we going to be talking about next week on Jaffa Cakes for Proust? Next week it's something Gary loves to do. I'm not washing my hands of this, but this is something particularly up your street. Also, in some ways, it's a little bit of a callback to what we were doing last year when we piloted the Green Bert experiment. Looking at Christmas television schedules. Well, we are, and yet there's a twist. Because you can't just plough through old schedules and say, oh, look at that. That a podcast does not make. No, what we're going to do is, you know how people on forums and things like that, they sort of assemble their perfect Christmas lineup and they say, oh, what should happen is it starts at nine o'clock in the morning and it's got all these different things on it and then it finishes at midnight and here's my perfect lineup and everything. Well, we know that in the real world, realism, again, in the real world, that doesn't happen. 
So we're going to be realists and we're going to plow through the Christmas schedules going all the way back to, I think we're going to start about sort of 1960 and probably end around about sort of 89, but there'll be sort of, you know, leeway here and there. We've been looking at those schedules for the past few weeks ourselves, and we're going to be discussing bits and pieces that are in each year's Christmas lineups. And eventually we're going to settle on one specific year, the year that we would choose if you could watch that particular Christmas Day lineup from start to finish. You've got the choice of all the channels that are available, which is going to be obviously three or four channels, depending on which year you go for. And you can't pick and choose. You can't make your own schedules. There's no video recorders. You're saying, I'm going to choose this particular year. This is what's on offer. And I think that this is the perfect Christmas given what we've got available to us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through all Christmas schedules. We're going to both pick a year. We're going to argue our case for a year. Maybe we'll have a poll on Twitter at the end of it and say, okay, which one do you want? Not that it's actually in the offing because obviously we don't have that facility. But I suspect that whatever we choose, it's probably going to be better than the lineup for 2017. Oh, by the way, might as well mention this just now. If you don't want a spoiler for any programs coming on over Christmas, then stop listening to the podcast now. You're not going to miss anything else because I think we're, we're largely wrapping up. So if you haven't seen the Christmas Radio Times or if you want to keep it special, then stop listening now. Now, if you're still listening, then you may be pleased to know that BBC4, at the time of recording this cast, is scheduled to air the 1972 Christmas Night with the Stars at 9pm on Christmas night. And of course... You can hear our discussion about Christmas Night with the Stars in the archives. You can find all of our previous podcasts at bodnose.com. You can follow us, Jaffas for Proust, on Twitter. Just search Jaffa Case for Proust on Facebook, where I think we're actually called the Sitcom Club. But anyway, near mind. So, are you the Christmas spirit yet, Till? Uh, not quite yet, no. I think this is different for yourself in the States, isn't it? Because Christmas sort of starts straight after Thanksgiving, and you've got all the Christmas specials on television for the next month, and then when the 25th rolls around, it's just like ice hockey and nothing else, isn't it? So is eggnog legally available for yourself now? I haven't checked yet. I want to check uh, if any of the cafes are going to start doing eggnog coffees. Well, in the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening, and we'll be back with you again next week on Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Proust.